Hello and welcome to the Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. Today is November 16th, 2005. This is your host, Stephen Novella, president of the New England Skeptical Society. With me today are Bob Novella. Hello, everyone. And Perry DeAngelis. Good evening. Uh, Evan Bernstein, who normally joins us, is not able to make it tonight. So let's start by going over some uh, skeptical news items. Uh, there's a, a few items caught my attention this week. The first is about James Doohan, who many of you may know as Star Trek's Scotty. Uh, he died recently, and you may have heard that, according to his wishes, his ashes were to be blasted into outer space. It's sort oh, of a, cool. a final tribute to uh, to Scotty. Scotty, you know, his character was he's the, he was the engineer of the Enterprise and. Sort of a running bit in the show was, uh, you know, the uh, conflict between Captain Kirk and Scotty. You know, Kirk was always demanding that he fix the ship and the engines in, in half the time than was than was uh, feasible, and Scotty would always do it. Well, uh, well because he, he said that he would double his time. <laughs> he doubled his <laughs> estimate so that he could have it. <laughs> uh, so he was to be launched recently in a Falcon 1 rocket, however... Ironically, the launch was delayed due to engine trouble. Uh, <laughs> so he was on the job, that wouldn't have happened. That's yeah. right. So the rocket launch is now delayed. They say it's not going to uh, fly. Is there a problem with the dilithium chamber? I think the dilithium yeah. crystals were cracked, and the phase reversal was all out of whack. Damn harmonics. So it's not going to fly any sooner than uh, February of 2006. So we will keep you updated about uh, Scotty's final trip into space. Another item that was sent to me uh, by a colleague this week is about... You have colleagues? I do. Okay, yeah, they're out there somewhere. The state of Florida uh, has recently launched a study into the benefits of magical or supernatural water as a cure for citrus canker. Now, the canker is its basically... Assume that's a disease on a fruit. Yes, it's a, it's a disease of citrus fruit trees... It is um, a bacteria. It's, pretty, it's a bacteria. pretty nasty. Apparently, the only thing you could do is destroy the, chi- the tree That's right. and dispose of it properly. That's right. There's no cure for the bacteria. There's no salve for the canker or anything like that, I guess. But because, like anything incurable, that it attracts the quacks and the charlatans, and people are always you know, offering up their miracle cures. But, of course, you know, the, the scientists who are in charge of such things don't pay any attention. But now... Uh, they decided to do a study of uh, what is called celestial drops, which is this supernatural water. This is I love this. Uh, this is classic pseudoscience technobabble. Um, celestial drops are promoted as a canker inhibitor because of its, this is in quotes, improved fractal design, infinite levels of order, and high energy and low entropy. Improved oh fractal design. Improved fractal design. Th- that's a new one, I must admit, using a little uh, from chaos theory to, uh, to so just your it's wacky claims. Right. I mean, it's basically just a nonsensical, incoherent mishmash of scientific-sounding terminology, which is, you know, typical of pseudoscience. But what's amazing is that they actually got the state of Florida to study this stuff, which apparently is prayed over. This is a uh, a Jewish, like a... Kabbalistic sort of ritual, they sort of pray over it and turn it into this supernatural water. 
But of well, course, the Catholics have uh, blessed water too. Maybe they're holy water, yeah, but, yeah, not, holy water, but right. not celestial drops, you know. So, so there's a difference between celestial and holy. It's a yeah, I think holy is good against demons and devils, and <laughs> celestial yeah, drops is good vampires. against citrus canker, apparently. Okay, it's a it's a level thing. It's a, a hierarchy. I guess so. Okay. But, you know, the, the, the concern, of course, is that the company that sells these celestial drops will use the fact that it's being studied by the state of Florida as a promotional marketing oh, yeah. tool, you know. So you can't even just studying it, forget about what the results of the study are, just the study itself gets used as a marketing tool. So we'll, we'll, uh, we'll keep an eye on that and see how that goes, I wonder. Any uh, price tag on that study? Was there any information with regards to that? The article that I... Uh, that I have did not, uh, let's see. Steve, see. Wasn't there some sort of resolution that they actually did some studies, found no evidence of any efficacy at all, and kind of abandoned it? Did I, I thought I read something about some sort of resolution to the whole thing. I don't, I, I didn't it just says that they spent six months developing a protocol and that they finally started studying it. I don't see any results. Uh, how recent is the piece? Uh, this month. Okay, then it's a problem. I would assume not then, Bob. Right. But we'll, we'll see if we could dig up anything else on it for, for the next show. We'll give okay. you an update. But it looks like it's just a, a they're, they're beginning the study. There's no price tag on it listed in the... Uh, we'll, keep it, we'll keep an eye out. Yeah. And finally, on the news segment, Perry, I think you sent me this one. A, a professor, Lauren Coleman, at the University of Southern Maine, said that he was going to formally announce a million-dollar prize for any evidence which leads to the capture of a live Bigfoot. Uh, so this is not just for the evidence itself, but only evidence that results in right. the capture of a live the, specimen. The million dollars was for an actual specimen. That's correct. Yes, that's right. But, you didn't, but apparently you didn't have to produce the specimen, just evidence that led to the capture of the specimen. Dr. Coleman is a, is a cryptozoologist, so she studies you know, mythological or, uh, or mysterious animals. Well, that's a, coincidence. that's a coincidence, because I just uh, I put out an offer of a trillion dollars for anyone that gives me ed- evidence to, that leads to Bigfoot. So, uh, Is that true? So cool. Yeah, oh yeah, a trillion dollars. Well, I think what, what we could do, the, the New England Skeptical Society, the NES, can formally offer, you know, whatever, any sum that we wish, million, billion, trillion, whatever, for evidence leading to the capture of a live Bigfoot. I'd be willing to take that chance. Absolutely. Uh, yeah, of course, James Randi has had a... His own million dollars up for for some number of years now. Right, the million dollars psychic challenge, which we which we do occasional uh, screening for. Uh, but yeah, but Randy's Randy's purpose is to basically force uh, those with paranormal or supernatural claims to put up or shut up. To put up or shut up. He said, "Listen, I'm going to put up a million dollars. I want to put my money where my mouth is. I don't believe you can prove that you have supernatural or magical powers. If you can prove it in reasonable, scientific, uh, you know, controlled observation setting, I'll give you a million dollars. And that money is sitting in escrow. He can't, you know, chintz out on it. If somebody fulfills the criteria, they get the money." Uh, my sense is from reading the articles about uh, Dr. Coleman is, however, that she is sincere. You know, she's not doing this to prove that Bigfoot doesn't exist by forcing the Bigfoot community to put up or shut up. She's doing this because she wants to find Bigfoot. Is that, is that your sense too, Perry? Uh, absolutely. In fact, I think the whole thing is that my sense of, of this is that Coleman was able to convince a toy company, which with further investigation I discovered was in fact Hasbro, what, to put up this money mm-hmm. um, to, you know, just to generate interest. I'm sure that they would then, 
you know, use whatever was brought in to their own marketing uh, benefits to sell more toys and figures, trading cards and everything else that they make. But, of course, uh, the the piece goes on. um, A a subsequent piece uh, stated that the offer was, in fact, withdrawn Mm -hmm. prior to it even being uh, formally announced because the lawyers got wind of it. And they're worried about people hurting themselves. Right. Um, Not that they're it, worried they're going to give the million dollars away. They're worried that somebody will hurt themselves questing for the picture of Bigfoot and then sue Hasbro. Exactly. Which is uh, ridiculous, in my opinion. They, they, they were afraid. In fact, the way Coleman says it, uh, they were afraid someone was going to get hurt in the frenzy to find frenzy, uh, and, right. and photograph one of these creatures to find. I don't get. I don't understand the connection between Hasbro and Bigfoot. Well, uh, you know, it's not. It's not. It's not specific, Bob. But um, I assume it's. You know, he was able to convince them to put the money up, though it's not stated, because you know, in some way, they they were going to to use it. They were going to use it to uh, market toys, maybe. Uh, they've got a, action they've got figures a big, of Sasquatch. Yeah, so they've got a huge uh, Bigfoot line of toys ready to launch as soon as uh, somebody brings evidence. Uh, well, you know, <laughs> you know, Bob, uh, uh, the Abominable Snowman, the Loch Ness monster, anything. The whole collection, right? The whole, the yeah, whole, the whole collection, <laughs> cryptozoological collection. That's right. Well, actually, the uh, the off they they replaced the million dollar offer for a live Bigfoot with a five thousand dollar offer for just a, the the best photo. So That's there's, correct. There's now a photo contest. Yeah. Maybe we could send in some blurry photo of Perry in a gorilla costume. Could or something. could make That's a cool make a quick five G. That's I wear a size twelve. <laughs> probably wear a thirteen. Well, send a the picture photo. of Larry with no shirt on. That that'll yeah, right. Our hairy friend Larry. <laughs> okay. So, that was what was skeptically in the news this week. Uh, so let's move on to science or fiction. It's time to play Science, science or Fiction. fiction. <laughs> Are you all ready? Uh, so there is a, a theme this week uh, inspired by the, the Bigfoot piece. Again, science or fiction is... Uh, a game that we play on the Skeptics Guide. I come up with three news items. Either these are science facts or science news items. Two are real, two are science, and one is fiction. One I made up. And uh, my panel of skeptics tonight, Bob and Perry, have to figure out which one is the fake. The theme tonight is uh, mythical creatures. Now, uh, they are all. Um, involve paleontologists discovering a fossil evidence that has been likened to some mythical creature. And the, I'll tell you the three creatures, then I'll read the full headlines. So, number one is Godzilla, number two is Leprechauns, and number three is King Kong. Now, keep in mind, two of these are real. So, did paleontologists find fossil evidence of Godzilla off the southern tip of South America. That's one of the headlines. Uh, Researchers discover fossil evidence of a short-statured race of humans, dubbed, in quotes, leprechauns, uh, in the British Isles. Or, researchers have discovered the remains of King Kong, a giant gorilla that lived alongside early humans. So what do you think, Perry? Godzilla, leprechauns, or King Kong? Uh, th- th- tell me the Godzilla one again. 
just paleontologists find fossil evidence of, in quotes, Godzilla off the southern tip of South America. Yeah, that's that's um, you know, I I'd have to say that one is uh, the other ones. You know, uh, big monkey, sure. Uh, short people would probably get the nickname Leprechaun in uh, Britannia, so I'll say the first one. Alrighty, Bob? Well, let's see. Godzilla, you know, I saw, I didn't actually read it, but I came across articles recently about some uh, some nasty predator that was recently discovered. Um, and unfortunately, I'm very upset with myself now, but I didn't. I never got a chance to read it, and I think that's what um, that's what Godzilla's probably um, King Kong. That could be that could be the discovery of Gigantopithecus, which was basically a, a ten foot tall, very early human uh, found in South America. I, so that's my guess for for King for um, for King Kong, a giant ape like creature. Uh, Leprechauns. Now that little people. I mean, there's the famous discovery in the past couple of years of of uh, four and five foot tall people, or maybe even smaller. Uh, but they were referred to hobbits. Everybody's referring to them as hobbits, not leprechauns. So I might I might have to go with that one because that's I've never heard them referred to as leprechauns. And and I would think uh, in England they would they would they would uh, stick with the hobbit appellation that people have been using, and not leprechauns. Um, so, I think I'll go with leprechauns. Alrighty. Well, I'm just going to say, just rather than going one by one, Bob, you nailed it on the head. Yeah. <laughs> you got everyone exactly right. Okay. So, we'll start with Godzilla. Godzilla, actually, I thought, bo- I thought that was the easiest one, because I figured that you guys would just, you know, figure it was a dinosaur, you know. But, uh, and you'd be close. It wasn't an actual dinosaur. It was actually a crocodile ancestor. So, it's being dubbed, you know, Godzilla, but this is a crocodile uh, bigger than Tyrannosaurus rex. It was fully aquatic, so that it was not um, amphibious, so it didn't come out of the water like modern-day crocodiles. It was fully uh, fully aquatic. But bigger had, than was, T-Rex. But was carnivorous, had you know, a huge jaw full of, uh, full of teeth. So the um, Dacosaurus andigensis, so that is, that is the Latin name, being dubbed by the scientists who discovered it as Godzilla. The uh, the giant ape is Gigantopithecus. So you were right there again, Bob. So this is gigant. This is there. There have been species of Gigantopithecus discovered in the past. This is a new species, Gigantopithecus blackii. Now it's a primate, although it's not a hominid, Bob. So it was not human. Uh, it, it is the largest primate that has ever lived so far discovered. Uh, it's re- over 10 feet, over 10 feet. So that's huge. I mean, it's not you know, really King Kong size, but I mean, no, you, imagine, imagine, a, imagine a gorilla over 10 feet tall. That's a monster. Imagine how strong he was. Wow. And, and this fossil was found in Southeast Asia. Okay. Um, in China, I think, specifically. But they roamed Southeast Asia. The uh, the leprechauns I made up, uh, it was based upon the discovery of three-foot-tall humans in an Indonesian island that have been dubbed, as Bob said, hobbits. Uh, the discovery coming on the heels of the Lord of the Rings trilogy. And I just changed that into the British Isles and leprechauns. Right. Yeah. Okay. But, uh, yeah, that one was made up. So, Bob, you, you totally nailed it this time. This time? Yeah, well, you, you, yeah, I pretty much you, nailed it all the way around, yeah. Yeah, you did. 
you do. You, t- you guys do, all tend to do pretty well. Perry, a good guess, but uh, you know, Bob had the advantage of actually reading some of these articles. Yeah, that is helpful. <laughs> <laughs> and in a quickie update on our celestial drops piece. In fact, uh, that testing was already concluded. Um, you know, what's interesting about it is uh, it was ordered uh, down there in Florida by Catherine Harris. You remember that name? Yeah. Other of you too? Yeah, the, the post-election snafu. <laughs> That's right, the 2000 post-election. She was the Secretary of State at that time. Uh, but uh, she uh, she's the one that ordered the study, and it was, in fact, completed. Um, huh. it, it took six months, like I said, to, to actually do the protocols and the test. The whole process took six months. I see. And in a report submitted um, by Wayne Dixon, the head of Florida's Bureau of Entomology, Nematology, and Plant Pathology, he reported that, quote, the product is a hoax and not based on any credible known science. Well, he added, no. I wish to... I wish to maintain our standing in the scientific community and not allow the developers of celestial drops to use our hard-earned credibility to promote their product. Shocker. So it's a hoax. (laughs) That's what their study actually did find. I don't know why Mrs. Harris decided that celestial drops needed testing. I can't imagine. So how much money was spent to there is there, the there is still yeah, yeah there's no figure but you know figure uh, uh you know the state spending six months on it a cool million at least uh, just as a side note either of you know what nematology is n e m a t o l o g study of nematodes yeah that's my first thought <laughs> <laughs> that's what I would guess I don't know I just it's just a word I'm not familiar with I'll have to look that up all right. That's all. It's a quickie update for the hardworking folks at your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. <laughs> well, and speaking of idiocy, let's move on to our favorite topic, <laughs> intelligent design. Uh, ID, intelligent design, remains in the news. Uh, this is definitely a hot-button topic this year. Uh, so the update that I'd like to talk about is um, last Tuesday's voting. Uh, one of the, the smaller items that came out of the, uh, the Tuesday's election was that the Dover, Pennsylvania school board members, uh, eight of them, who supported an initiative to introduce intelligent design into the, the Dover public schools, were voted out, voted off of the school board. So this is similar to what happened in Kansas. If you remember, you know, a few years ago when the Kansas, this is the, the state school board, uh, removed evolution and the Big Bang and some other things from the state science standards, and there was a big to do about that. Kansas right. basically was, you know, embarrassed. Uh, the board members who supported that initiative were voted out. Uh, however, two years later, which is I believe last year, uh, the uh, conservatives were voted back onto the board, and now they're at it again, re- reintroducing. Um, creationist uh, creationist agenda into the Kansas science standards. Now, rather than um, removing evolution or introducing intelligent design, they are simply introducing mandated criticism of evolution, like including the, uh, the notion that evolution is not proven, that it's controversial, that, you know. Uh, which in the theory. Right, right, so... Actually, you know, um, I remember when we had uh, Chris Mooney on, he, he predicted that that was the next step, 
that uh, and that that might be a harder legal battle to fight because it's not introducing any notion which could be claimed to be sci- uh, religious, such as intelligent design. It's just being critical of evolution. But but then they also want to uh, just have a quick mention of a recommendation of a, a book to describe the you know the the leading. Uh, Competitive theory. Was that Kansas or Dover? Was that Kansas? Ah, uh, yeah, you're right. I'm not sure. I'm not sure. It might have been Dover, but um, okay. That was, there was a reference to the panda's thumb, which is an intelligent design uh, propaganda book, basically. Uh, right, saying so students may want to look at, at this reference for further information about, you know, uh, skepticism about evolution. Right. Now, so we'll see what happens in Dover. I mean, I think it's good that, you know, when attention is paid to these issues, that the public acts sensibly and votes out the radicals who are basically right. trying to, insti- to to impose their uh, narrow agenda on the public schools. But um, I don't know if history will repeat itself, just like in Kansas, after attention wanes, uh, will the the creationists still be there? You know, wait, basically waiting in the wings and then pounce again once once public attention is is on the wane. Uh, Especially so though, you know, I, I think I read somewhere that the the margin, the voting margin was was wasn't it wasn't a landslide victory. Uh, you know, it was relatively close. I think uh-huh. that's 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 what I read too, Bob. You know, I was actually trying to find the exact vote, and I couldn't find it. I mean, I, I looked for uh, quite a while, and I, I couldn't get the exact numbers. Uh, there's actually one member of the board who's uh, protesting the election, wants a recount, because he says it was felt the machines were not accurate or something. He wants a recount, but uh, I, w- I would have liked to have seen the, the, the raw data, because I heard it you know, was closer than one might have imagined. Now, it's too bad. Uh, televangelist Pat Robertson, he was the oh, host yeah. of the 700 Club. The founder uh, of the Christian Broadcasting Network and Christian Coalition. Uh, had this to say about the vote. Uh, he said that if the citizens of Dover find themselves the victim of some natural catastrophe or disaster, that they shouldn't go praying to God or looking to God for help because they've already kicked God out of Pennsylvania. I think the exact quote. He stopped <laughs> short. He stopped short of saying that a disaster will happen. But, but if one happens to to strike the good citizens of Dover, Pennsylvania, they only have themselves to blame, and they shouldn't go praying to God for help. Is that unbelievable? Yeah. I mean, and and just uh, this past summer, he made uh, some uh, pro- provocative statements. Uh, remember? Do you remember this summer? I think it was July. Calling for the assassination of Venezuelan. Uh, uh, yes. Was it President uh, Hugo Chavez? Right. One Called of uh, Bush's uh, criti- critics. But um, he's a but wacko. It's funny though. It. But it's funny. I thought ID was a scientific theory. Uh, it, it, it doesn't have anything to do with religion. So wh- why is he invoking God so much? You know, why is he so upset? Right. Right. Uh, yeah, it's a good point. I mean, the the whole, the movement loses credibility again. They're they're trying to be coy with ID, saying that we're right. not talking about God, just some abstract intelligent designer, you know, not the Christian God. But uh, the reactions of people like Pat Robertson are very telling. It's uh, oh, absolutely. It's that the Christian community, you know, fundamentalist Christian community, who are behind intelligent design, uh, and they know very well who the intelligent designer is. And also, Robertson in 1998, 
he um, he issued a warning to uh, Orlando, Florida, that they risked um, natural disasters like hurricanes, earthquakes, and uh, not so natural ones like terrorist bombs, because uh, because they they allowed homosexual organizations to put up these rainbow flags in support of you know sexual diversity and stuff. So uh, right. I mean he he. This this is his um he's a fire this is his MO. I mean yeah. you know things don't go his way and he makes these dire predictions and forecasts like come on he's getting um, kind of old and cranky you know his presidential run didn't go uh, quite the way he wanted it you know he's getting a little cranky in his whole <laughs> that's, that's my opinion you know what else I've always found intriguing is that the, the most powerful evidence I've ever personally encountered for evolution. Mm-hmm is the few humans around who are, in fact, more primate than human. <laughs> Interestingly enough, most of, the, of which have been elected to the Kansas Board of Education. Uh-huh. You, mean, you mean more ape than human. Humans are primates. <laughs> more ape than human. <laughs> yes. Pat, Pat Robertson's uh, ministry, he's got 41 million members, making him the third largest Christian ministry in the world. After, after who? Two people. The Pope. Yeah. <laughs> um, uh, uh, moral majority. What's the... Uh, Farwell. Jerry Farwell? No. no uh, I have here Oral Roberts. Oral He's number Roberts. three. Uh, 41 million. A million people listening to his uh, television broadcast. Is Oral Roberts still around? I don't ever hear from him anymore. No, that's what my... Isn't he said. the one that confessed his sins with the young girl or whatever? Can you be more right specific? No. Can you be more specific, Perry? That which was Jimmy one? Swaggart. Oh, that was Swaggart. Thank you. Thank you. I could, yeah, which, I which one that confessed his sins? <laughs> I couldn't keep my my envelope. That was Jimmy Baker. Evangelicals uh, straight. Baker went to jail. Right? Yeah. Yeah. And his wife, uh, Tammy Faye, went to uh, reality television. She did. She did. You know, I, for some reason, I watched that, that, that season of... The real I watched, life. I watched that season of Surreal Life. For some reason, I watched the first episode, and um, I'm sorry, Bob. You're fired from the Skeptics Guide. <laughs> well, well, come on. I would, I would just watch it. You know why? You know the only reason I watched it? I remember now. I, I read a review on Reality News Online. Some guy reviewed it, and he said, "Wow, this was an interesting episode." And he said, "All these, all these stars like um, the Chips guy. What's his name? Uh, dark hair." And uh, Tammy Faye and the ch- and the guy from Chips and and a couple other people. And the guy said, from Chips. Uh, was it Vanilla sell- Ice on there? Too? The, the, the one who's selling real estate in Ice, Florida now. That guy. And he, this guy gave such a glowing <laughs> review of the episode. I'm like, you've got to be kidding me! It's a real life Tammy Faye and all these guys. And he said this was su- such an entertaining episode. Well, needless to say, it piqued my interest. I watched the first episode and I enjoyed it. Surprisingly, I watched the season. I got my I got my brother Jay into it. And we liked it. There's something about it that you just didn't expect from these people. And and even Tammy Faye, I, it took me a while, but I actually kind of warmed up to her because she didn't spout she didn't spout any nothing religious came out of her mouth. Really, I mean, she was very religious light. It just she toned it, down her image. She toned it down. She, well, she had nowhere else to go, though. Let's face it. Well, um, she, you know, she she was very pleasant. She was she was she was nice. Just not really what I, I expected. This you know. This woman that was always, you know, uh, preaching to people. None of that happened. And even, uh, even the, the the porn actor um, Ron Jeremy, who was like the only, he seemed skeptical to me. He was the only skeptic in the whole group because 
Vanilla Ice was spouting this stuff about how we descended from aliens and aliens came from this planet. And he just, you know, just coolly talking to him, you know, trying to throw evidence at him or just some good questions, some critical thinking. Right. And he actually seemed like a skeptic to me. And, I, and the guy was just so, so funny. And actually, Ron Jeremy and Tammy Faye hit it off and became buddies. Yeah, once like, again, once again, close. we see the correlation between skepticism and pornography. <laughs> right. <laughs> over and over. It's a, just a pattern. Which one was there? It was uh, uh, interesting. That's interesting <laughs> that it was. I, I couldn't watch that show, but suppose. Uh, just you know, so a final word on this intelligent design update. I, I, the it's nice that that the intelligent design board members were voted out. I mean that that's very uh, very laudable. Very laudable. But I, you know, it's not a last. As we saw in Kansas, those victories are not lasting. The only lasting victories are in the Supreme Court. So when this. Uh, we're still waiting for the decision about the constitutionality of uh, forcing the teaching of intelligent design in the public schools based upon you know, the parents who brought suits against the Dover school system for, for doing that. Uh, so we have yet to see the final resolution of that. Uh, and again, I believe it's at the, the state level now, and um, if it doesn't get struck down at that level, then perhaps it will go to the uh, Supreme Court level. But when, when those court decisions get handed down, they produce enduring victories for our side. Of course, the Supreme Court is undergoing a radical change this year, and uh, it remains to be seen you know, how these, these issues are going to play out in the Supreme Court. So we will have to wait and see. And for those of you who are wondering out there, nematology is, in fact, the study of nematodes. Thank you. Yeah. And nematodes are any of several worms in the phylum nematoda having unsegmented cylindrical bodies, often narrowing at each end, and including parasitic forms such as the hookworm and pinworm, also called roundworm. There you have it. Parasitic worms, there you go. For the edification of our millions of listeners. Nice. We're almost up there with Pat Robertson. Hmm. <laughs> so, Bob, you've been, uh, you sent me this piece um, on... Uh, the article is called Putting the Psi, P-S-I, into Science, about ESP experiments. Why don't you tell us about that? It's an interesting article from The, from the Guardian from, uh, from September. And uh, they, they talk about this, what they describe as Britain's oddest lab called uh, the Kessler Parapsychology Unit in, at the University of Edinburgh. They do a lot of the, uh, the usual stuff that they study. They do experiments involving ESP, psychokinesis, clairvoyance, hauntings, out-of-body experiences, but they really make an effort. They make a really, I don't know, they, they really put a lot of stock into, their, into the respectability of their experiments and, and how rigorous their science is. The, um, the acting head of the unit, Carolyn Watt, says that uh, parapsychologists make extraordinary claims, so they must take extraordinary care in their experiments. Right. Now, uh, interesting comment from uh, someone doing experiments with uh, ESP and stuff, but, uh, but she's right. Extraordinary care, yes, but you, you also need extraordinary evidence, and that's something that still, even after all, right. all these experiments, even this institute lacks. So you so have to go a little beyond the care. Because after a while, once you, once you spend enough time with your extraordinary, extraordinarily careful experiments, you've got, you, you got to conclude, well, you know, there's really nothing here. Let, let's go on to something else. They do. Um, they're, one of their 
one of their big experiments that they do uh, very often are the, the Gansfeld experiments. Yes. That has telepathic communication. And the setup is basically they got a sender in front of a video monitor, and there's a receiver who sees four videos. One of, one of them was the one that the sender saw, and the other ones, the other four or three, are, are decoys. And you would think 25 per, 25% should be correct. Now, some of the largest studies that they did show a small bias of up to 5% towards them choosing correctly. Now, the reporter says, impressive if it's true. I mean, does that seem impressive to you guys, of up to 5%? That doesn't, I'm not impressed by that at all. I mean, yeah, it's a residue. I mean, the the yeah. Gansfeld experiments were were um, used for for a number of years by the CIA. They they right. in fact invested 20 million taxpayer dollars in the Gansfeld experiments, and they had they eventually abandoned it, saying that this was worthless. I mean, they were hoping to develop psychic spies, you know, but. Uh, they and again there was like a two or three percent, two or three percent I think is what they came up with in terms of um, in excess correct uh, right. selections. But uh, there are there were outstanding criticisms of those protocols that that were never resolved. Uh, for example, there uh, there was a the the position of like the four choices. Uh, the position of the correct choice was not entirely random, and, and it occurred in the first position more often than okay. the other three. So if there was any bias uh, of the receiver towards choosing the first image, that could account for part of this, this effect. But even though it was a couple percentage points. Right. Um, hardly you know, worthy of rewriting the physics books right. and, or the, the neuroanatomy books. And this institute is claiming up to 5%, which, which isn't very impressive to me at all. Um, maybe statistically it's, it's, you know, minimally significant, but uh, right. I don't know. And uh, one, of the, uh, one of the workers there, one of the physicists, was asked, you know, how does this work? Which I think is an interesting question, because after a while it gets kind of boring you know, to go over the experiments and stuff over and over and, and try to show all these different ways and see how it manifests itself. Right. Eventually I like to think, you know, all right, Let's assume that, that there is something here. What would be required for it to work? And this is what this guy's asked. And he said, we still don't know. Uh, there, he says, right. there must, this is, his name is Paul Stevens. He said, there must be a physical basis. If there isn't, then we're moving into the realm of the supernatural. But he admits the research has so far uh, been fruitless. So, uh, yes. which uh, I like, I enjoy those kind of questions. And, and if you, uh, hopefully, if he, you know, if he did, if he studied and tried to determine how it might be. He, hopefully, he would have looked at you know some of the fundamental forces of nature to try. I mean, that's how I would try to explain it. Okay, if there's this this force or this power or this energy, then you'd have to look at the fundamental forces. And I'm, I I wrote an article on uh, on on that a few years ago, and mm -hmm. and looking at all the forces, and it was interesting. And uh, but of course, all of them uh, easily you know preclude uh, an ex you know an explanation for this. I mean, gravity's too weak for the masses involved, and also how you know, if your brain was somehow using gravity, which kind of sounds bizarre, I mean, how would it even modulate a gravity wave in order to send this type of information? So gravity is definitely out. Um, the weak force um, works over nuclear distances, and that drops off very quickly. So that, I mean, that's, I'm sure that can't be it. And same for the strong force. The one that, was, that seemed most likely at first blush would be uh, the electromagnetic spectrum. But the brain... The brain is simply not a transmitter or receiver for electromagnetic waves. Right. 
Um, I mean, this, just the shape of the head and the way the brain works and, and everything, it's, it's just not designed to be to receive or transmit any electromagnetic radiation. And then, of course, it'd be so easy to detect. I mean, we have, we've got detectors that can detect anything, you know, from gamma rays to, to radio waves. We, we would, you know, you'd think somebody would have, would have said, oh, what's this uh, kind of spurious signal? Well, I mean, just to be clear, to be clear, though, you know, the brain does produce magnetic and electrical waves and, and that we can record. Right. There's an electroencephalogram, which is a measurement of the electrical fields produced by the, the electrical currents of the neurons, which you can measure at the, the scalp surface. Right. And there's also MEG, magnetic encephalogram, magnetoencephalogram, which uses a very large device that detects the, the much, much weaker magnetic fields produced by, the, again, the electrical current traveling through the pathways in the brain. But this is just, this is, these are not signals. Right. This it's, is just the fields, yeah, the fields generated by the moving current in the brain. And they are incredibly attenuated by the skull. And they're also, they also drop off very quickly with distance. Um, so not really a candidate for, for ESP. So, I mean, this, so you raise a lot, some interesting issues I just want to highlight and talk about a little bit. One is the difference between when you're talking about a paranormal claim like ESP. And we talked about this a little bit on the last show about astrology. There's, the, there's you know, research which is designed to answer the question of does this phenomenon exist? And then another type of research which is designed to ask the question of how could it work? What would the mechanism be? Mm -hmm. And it is true that these are separate questions. Now, the, the true believers will often, you know, whenever any question about mechanism comes up, they hide behind the notion that, well, that's unimportant. The only thing that really matters is does it work? And uh, that's, that's true to a degree, the, to the degree that the absence of a known or provable mechanism doesn't mean a phenomenon isn't real, but uh, it does speak to the, the prior plausibility of that phenomenon existing. Uh, we, we, we are at a stage in our development of scientific knowledge where we know something significantly more than nothing about the way the universe works. And, you know, we have accumulated enough knowledge at this point where we can make some educated guess about the plausibility of whether or not something is possible. But having said that, if a, a truly anomalous phenomenon could be adequately proven and, and reproducible, even though we had no way of explaining how it could possibly work, I would still accept that that's a real phenomenon. But the burden of proof is certainly pretty high. So with ESP... The fact that there's no plausible explanation doesn't tell you it's not real, but it, it tells you something about, you know, how much evidence would be required for us to accept that this phenomenon is real. So far, all we get are these few percentage points, uh, anomalous percentage points in, in uh, you know, well-designed, rigorous studies, uh, which could easily be due to just minor fluctuations or flaws in the methodology. Uh, nothing, nothing concrete. Yeah, you would think there'd be at least one experiment or, or one person that could, you know, unequivocally, you know, prove to you that, that, that there's some phenomena there and not some subtle little anomaly. There's no smoking gun. There's nothing uh, that um, really is, is generally accepted as clear-cut evidence that there is a real phenomenon going on. Uh, so absent that... 
uh, the fact that there's no plausible mechanism. You take the combination of those two things, you know, leads a reasonable scientific person to the conclusion that this is probably not a real phenomenon. And that's where we are right now. The, 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 you can also, I think, look over time and say, well, you know, has the probability of this phenomenon existing changed as we learn more about nature and as more and more efforts to document its existence are carried out, are we getting at all closer to to evidence for it? And with ESP, the answer is clearly no. A hundred years ago, the opposite. you know, the, 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 where it was the, the same situation as to basically where we are right now. We basically, over the last hundred years of para, parapsychological research, there have been, you know, there's no more evidence for existence than there, than there was, and there's nothing has emerged that is even a, even a candidate plausible mechanism. So you have the, the dimension of time to add to that. Uh, whereas take, for example, evolution. You know, 150 years ago, nobody knew what the mechanism of evolution was. What we thought we knew about inheritance was really incompatible with evolutionary theory. There, the, there was scant fossil evidence, and, you know, we didn't really understand a lot about the mechanisms of evolution. And over the last 150, you know, if we were in the same place today that we were 150 years ago, there would be, that would be reason for skepticism about evolution. Absolutely. But instead, we discovered genetics and DNA, population, you know, genetics, and there's been a host of new discoveries which have all dramatically supported and reinforced the theory of evolution. The same it, is not true for ESP. Right. I mean, it's transformed biology. It's the one single unifying concept in biology. Right. And ESP has achieved no tangible effects or outcome. Uh, so it leaves a reasonable person skeptical of its existence. Well, we have a pleasant surprise. Uh, Evan Bernstein has decided to join us for the last segment of our show. Evan, welcome to the Skeptics Guide tonight. Thank you very much. I'd have I'd have been here earlier had I not been abducted by aliens on the way home we're, from work we're, tonight. We're glad you managed to effect an escape. Be able to us. to wiggle off the probe. It was more <laughs> of a release. It was more of a release <laughs> than an escape. And yes, the probing was actually, um, you know. Tolerable, I would say. Yeah. He would have been here earlier, earlier, but he didn't want to cut the probing short. <laughs> oh, yeah, right. Thank you. Well, Evan, since you're just joining us, why don't we uh, do a topic that you sent in this week? Uh, you uh, have been reading a bit about uh, a man by the name of Lloyd Pye, who was uh, featured in an article I wrote a few years ago. Why don't you tell us what you came up with? I came across uh, Lloyd Pye when I was just uh, searching through some uh, links today on the web, of course. And uh, the folks at yesweekly.com, I guess I have to credit them, um, is posting an um, article about UFOlogists and how they're weighing in on the human origin debate. You know, of course, the human origin debate is the hot topic in skeptical realms and popular popular news articles these days, of course. And, you know, of course, we've been talking a lot about evolution and we've been talking a lot about creationism, but there's a whole other aspect of the origin of man that, uh, that I don't know that we've touched on thoroughly, and that is the intervention theory. That we are planted here by aliens. Yes, which this gentleman, Lloyd Pye, um, along with another uh, cohort of his, whose name escapes me at the moment. Is that P-I-E uh, has, has or P-I? P-Y-E, Lloyd uh-huh. Pye. And he appeared at a, uh, a MUFON 
convention recently, and that's what this article was about. That's the, and I guess that's the mutual UFO network. Right. 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 And he was one of the, the key speakers and, of course, gave his presentation again in regards to his uh, inter- intervention theory. Um, Lloyd Pye, th- by the way, is what we technically refer to as a loony tune. <laughs> <laughs> I love those for technical words. Well, that's for lack of a better term because he really, uh, I don't know what, what terminology he fits or not. But, he, he, uh, he's the author of the book, by the way, Everything You Know Is Wrong. Right? That's Isn't right. That him? Yeah. And uh, speaking of which, Steve, if you were to go to this person's website and you would uh, click on the Everything You Know Is Wrong little link they have there, some questions come up that he poses. Have you ever wondered why humans only use about 10% of our massively oh. supercharged <laughs> brains? Oh. Why savants can somehow access parts of the remaining 90%? Uh, why humans have a gene pool with over 4,000 genetic defects. Why our closest genetic relatives, chimps and gorillas, have very few. That's, a, that's just wrong. That's just <laughs> actually incorrect. Oh, I mean, and it goes on. I mean, this, list is, this list is two pages long right. of this and other similar um, interesting I think the, questions the book, that he the poses. Book, that, the book that should have been titled Everything I Know is Wrong. <laughs> I meaning Lloyd Pye. <laughs> For you know, just the ten percent of the brain—that's that's a—that's a total myth. There's a, there's an article on the Nest website about that. I think it's called "90 uh, percent of a brain is a terrible thing to waste." <laughs> uh, and you know, the, the the reason why there are so many, there is so much junk in our DNA. It is speculated is that it, it's fertile ground for evolutionary change, for adaptation. Um, now, Steve, but I, anyway, haven't, but I haven't read I haven't read his book, but I'm going to almost guarantee that your conclusions are totally 100% different from his different, conclusions. Different, yes, different. Um, and you, of course, you're speaking about this the featured speaker at the MUFON convention. So <laughs> right. I think we should I think we should show it its proper respect. Steve, you had uh, written previously uh, about this gentleman. He came up. Um, if you do a Google search for this person's name, and you type in the word skeptic right after it and do a Google search, the first link that comes up, Steve, is an article that you wrote for the New England Journal of Skepticism back in the year 2000. Right. Um, relating to the Star Child. Uh, the Star Child Project. Media phenomenon right. that, it, that I guess it was at the time. By the way, this is I recently updated that article, and it's now a featured article on our homepage because it was updated. And it looks good. Looks good up there, I must say. And I, I do recall uh, reading this a few years ago, but it was nice to uh, go over and read again because not only do you give a very good uh, explanation about how science versus pseudoscience, what the differences are and how mm-hmm. to tell the difference between the two, you do an excellent job of that. You you use this particular you use the Star Child case as as really a uh, as an example a, of pseudoscience, a, a good example of pseudoscience in which you're able to really point out with ease. Um, all the hundreds of flaws, it would seem, that uh, Mr. Pye uh, constantly, uh, constantly is making when mm-hmm. making his arguments about right. Uh, right. about this uh, skull that they found from allegedly, uh, allegedly, right? right. And it, the skull. So, just quickly to encapsulate the Star Child Project, a number of years ago, a uh, an individual, I can't remember the name, um, had in his possession. The skull of uh, apparently of a child with a large malformed head. Now he had a story about where the skull came from, but there was no 
documentation of the of the provenance, the prior history of this skull. It just comes out of nowhere, which is always a red flag for a hoax. Uh, but even if you take it uh, at at face value, it was discovered in a cave in Mexico, along with an adult female skeleton. Um, now, because of the large, sort of bulbous skull uh, on this sh- this child's skull, uh, it it can you sort of be reminiscent of the big-headed gray alien. So it was dubbed a star child, and if you know the, the, this guy Lloyd Pye believes that uh, it is the product of a human alien. Uh, breeding program, which again is, is his intervention theory, right? That's correct. Now, th- what's interesting is you know how he has managed to convince himself to argue that this this skull is of a is anomalous, is of a not only anomalous or unexplainable, but therefore an alien human hybrid. Uh, he you know, dismisses a couple of you know, kind of silly uh, explanations out of hand, and that's the extent of his uh, attempts to scientifically explain the skull. I took one glance at you know again I'm a neurologist for those who don't know. I took one glance and I'm like god that kid has hydrocephalus. Uh which is a pretty you know common well-known entity. Uh I um on, on my article I included a picture of uh out of a textbook of a child with hydrocephalus and it looks pretty similar to the skull. Uh, he doesn't even address that as as a possibility. So uh, again, sort of the, the pre- one of the, the features of pseudoscience is the um, the preference for the supernatural. Ex- uh, Steve, couldn't couldn't um, couldn't you in fact say that all hydroencephalic children are in fact alien human half breeds? Uh, <laughs> well, um, hydrocephalics. Uh, what basically that means is that there's a blockage in the flow of the the water inside the brain, the cerebral spinal fluid, and the the large bulbous head develops over time uh, if it's not surgically corrected. Uh, so it's a it's a very it's a it's a strictly anatomical you know phenomenon that's well understood and curable. There's nothing, and even if you, if you put up just a drainage tube in these kids' heads, they're perfectly normal you know human children. So it's not compatible with you know a uh, genetically Alien hybrid, half breed. Yeah, wouldn't a DNA test just put the whole question to bed? I mean, if now you would think so. You know, uh, so you know, Gordon Pye w- w- did uh, have some samples of the skull DNA tested, and uh, th- you know, if again, if you were a sincere, honest, intellectually honest scientist, the DNA test would have put any any notion of a hybrid to to rest. Uh, so there are, are two levels, basically, to the DNA testing. One is just a chromosomal analysis. So looking at, you know, the, the chromosomes are the, the individual clumps of DNA that make up uh, our, our DNA. Uh, and, you know, we have um, 22 pairs of, of chromosomes uh, in humans. And he, so the, 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 the bone from the, the alleged star child had a chromosomal analysis, and what it showed was that he had an X chromosome and a Y chromosome. Uh, the X is, uh, you know, female and the Y is male. You know, women are XX and men are XY. 
So you can only, women can only give an X to their children. A male can either give an X or a Y. If they give an X, the child's female. If they give a Y, the child is male. So, um, Pi concluded that that was, even though it was not what he predicted would, would, would be seen, he, re, he interpreted after the fact as being consistent with a hybrid. However, he doesn't answer the question. It's actually incompatible with a hybrid for the following reason. If, the, if his mother was human and, the, and the, the father was alien, where did the human Y chromosome come from? Because the human mother could only give the X. The alien apparently has no human chromosomes and has something else entirely. So where did it get the Y? Where did they get the human Y chromosome <laughs> from? Well, that 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 question shows a, a complete lack of understanding of alien of, uh, of of alien birth technology. Of course, and their various uh, test tube uh, methodology. Right, right. But a close-minded, but a close-minded skeptic like yourself, uh, I expect nothing less. Right. I mean, you could you could obviously concoct as you were parroting. A, uh, a hypothesis that's not falsifiable by the DNA evidence. In other words, whatever you find in the DNA evidence is compatible with your magical aliens. You could do whatever you want. You call it special pleading. I special call it pleading. alien breeding. <laughs> Steve, I liked, I, liked, I liked in your article here, you, you wrote, um, as Carl Sagan once pointed out, alien genetic instructions, the product of a completely different evolutionary past, would be incompatible with human DNA. We would have more luck breeding a human with a petunia than an right. alien. Yeah. That's right. We have I more in common genetically with a petunia than with an alien. <laughs> um, that's correct. I mean, you know, it's just it's it's you know absurd actually. It, it really they is. Would, they wouldn't have the same genetic code. They wouldn't necessarily have the same amino acids. There'd be no basis for commonality between between the two. Um, but anyway, so the the second level would be de- sequencing the DNA itself. Um, now they were able to sequence the DNA of the uh, the female adult skeleton that was found with the child, and they were able to tell that she was not his mother. So it was a, a female caretaker, but not not the child's biological mother. Uh, not that which I don't see as being relevant one way or the other to the alien hypothesis. But they were not able to sequence the DNA from the child because the amplification techniques are not yet um, powerful enough to do that. But they're hoping that within a few years they'll be able to do that. So that, that, has, that has not been done yet, as far as my, as I was able to tell, as of a week ago. They're always on the edge, right? <laughs> but Pi is ever confident that the analysis will show something anomalous. I wouldn't be surprised if he's asking people for donations so that he could further his research and get to those, get those next couple of years of research under his belt, so he right, can prove right. to the entire scientific community that his findings and his hypothesis is, cor- is totally correct. Right. I guess we'll see. Yawn. Right. <laughs> of course, at the same time, he evinces utter disdain for the scientific community. Oh, yeah. Again, another sort of pseudoscientific characteristic. Hey, you want a couple gems that I pulled from, from this article? Here. Here's just a couple things that this article from YesWeekly.com. A couple quotes. Here, Pi says, Science would have you believe that Mother Nature created us. It isn't natural. It happened in a genetics lab. Um, Cheetahs are weird, he says. The tan portion of their coat is composed of dog fur, while black spots are cat hair. Scientists have ignored this obvious evidence of prehistoric cloning because they cannot explain it. Wow. Scientists always ignore evidence they can't explain. That's right. Rather than 
the, the reality, which is, you know, evidence that can't be explained is the basis of grants and careers, because that's where the research is. Well, he claims he's never going to be treated with the same kind of respect of, of, those, who doing, of those in the scientific community, um, because this is something no one really wants to answer, wants the answer to. Yeah, that's that so is, lame. Uh, that is that the is answer so of lame. where we have come from and what we are all about. So. Everyone wants to know the answer to that. <laughs> Everyone. And any scientist who could prove something fantastical, like, you know, we were planted here by aliens or, you know, true genetic anomalies, you know, would be able to, to would get the Nobel Prize. It would be world famous. would be able to build a career out of that. And there would be thousands of spin-off careers on that if that were, in fact, the truth and where the research led. It's just absurd nonsense to claim that scientists are running away from the evidence. Just, that is utter naivete. It's also, I'm, I'm also always amazed at the absolute hubris of people like Pi who think that they know better than the entire scientific community. They know better than the thousands of scientists who are working throughout the world. This guy must, and they all, you know, again, they, in their own minds, they must think of themselves as Einstein and Galileo, you know, and Darwin all roll into, rolled into one. And they're, you know, put on little pedestals by the UFO community and the Yeti community and the Bigfoot community and other people who would, uh, you know, believe in such nonsense. Right. And, you know, certainly further his own... Uh, uh, his own ideas in his own mind, feeling that he's doing something right, right. because he's uh, backed up by a bunch of folks who, uh, well, let's face it, <laughs> could use some serious attention, in my opinion, <laughs> by professionals. So uh, his talk was well received at MUFON, I take it. Very well, re very well received. Uh, well enough for at least half of this article that. Uh, that I came across, but you know, and I didn't, I didn't finish my research on this, and maybe we'll, I'll conclude this another night with you guys, but I, I, also in the article came, came another um, reference to a whole other line of UFO nonsense. A gentleman by the name of David Boldman. You ever hear of this guy? No. All right. His area of expertise is UFO trace evidence. Mm -hmm. And uh, he points to the phenomenon known as angel hair. Mm -hmm. I've heard of that. As a substance often left when flying, uh, when UFOs uh, pass over any any particular given given site. So I've begun to look into that a little, and I've uh, not uh, I'm not I'm not uh, uh, fully concluded my find my findings of what's going on. But it seems to take on certainly a religious connotation, at least at first, prior to the 1947 Roswell phenomenon. For instance, when this um, uh, it was attributed to angels, and that's why it was originally dubbed angel hair. Whenever there were angel sightings, the the faithful would come out and um, and and see the the remnants left behind by the angels' visitations, which was this spider web sort of material that was very very thin, and upon and it would be left all over the ground. It would literally rain from the sky on, peop on, on people, and you'd go to touch it, and it would, it would sort of disappear to the touch. Mm -hmm. And people, of, of course, in the 19th century and early 20th century, um, the writings and the, uh, is attributed to, uh, to uh, religious phenomena, such as the sighting of angels. Mm -hmm. That's the term angel hair. And then, starting at around 1948... Um, it began to be attributed to be um, a coincidence or, a co or it coincided with UFO sightings. 
Right. But apparently for a couple of years there, among about half of the UFO sightings on record um, said that this, this angel hair, this spiderweb substance, was, uh, was, left, uh, was left behind from where the alien craft was flying. And um, well, but but no one has specimens of this. No, there. no one has no one has specimens. Uh, someone claims to um, this 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 fellow from the conference claims that he does have a specimen which is uh, currently going under testing of some sort. Let's see what uh, what it says here. Um, well, I know that they did discover that angel hair can only be cleaned with celestial water. Right, <laughs> celestial drops. Uh-huh. <laughs> <laughs> I, I did read that. Now, I did find what I have found so far. I've just started to uncover because it took me. It, it's not. Uh, it didn't come up in my first so, uh, set of Google searches, and it, it's it's not even really mentioned on any of the uh, more popular skeptical websites. I don't even think it's in our skeptical dictionary. Um, but I did find something here: OntarioProfessionals.com uh, under their weird section. Uh, angel hair. Angel hair is said to be imperial and an ephemeral, ephemeral silky yeah. substance that falls from the sky. Um, just out of touch. Just out of touch. But apparently what it is is that spiders actually do produce this material. Sure. Um, yeah, and they actually literally fly in the air upon this material, and they fly great distances and in great clusters and great, great enough numbers that the remnants of the spider webs that they're creating fall, falls eventually to Earth, um, and in such quantities that it does collect and, and is, is really somewhat of a bit of a spectacular uh, presentation. And for those people who certainly don't have any idea what it is, you know, they're, they're likely to, to, to insert their, uh, their closest held beliefs, you know, angels or UFOs or what yeah. have you. I've read about that. It's, uh, I believe it's called MASS, M-A-S-S, the, uh, the quantity of, uh, of spider silk that you see just kind of floating in the wind. You know, mm-hmm. these, uh, the spiders use them. It's called ballooning. They, um, they, 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 you know, they shoot out a bunch of their webbing until the wind can, uh, can pick them up. And it actually... Spiders have been found, you know, near mountaintops and in the middle of the ocean because because this is such a, an effective way of of traveling. And then when 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 they land, they just kind of, you know, release it and it just kind of continues flying along. I first learned about that from Charlotte's Web, that children's story. That's right. I remember that scene. The uh, the baby all the little, spiders. All the little baby spiders. They uh, they secrete their their web material, which uh, and they float away on the wind. Yeah. It's too bad you know, Lloyd Pye and his, his friends didn't read Charlotte's Web. They would have <laughs> been able to have had a more prosaic explanation for these angel hair. So this David Boldman at this conference says, uh, he says, physically it's superficially similar to spider web, but it has the unusual property of dissolving or disappearing. Hmm. Um, Except when it doesn't. He does not dismiss the idea of extraterrestrials because he thinks it would be more ridiculous uh, if there weren't extraterrestrials um, Secreting this material from their UFO flights. How exactly he ties into that? This article doesn't really explain that. I'm having a hard time trying to figure that one out myself by the research I'm doing. But as I find some more on this, I'll uh, I'll bring it up again another time and uh, let you know what else I find. It was just interesting because I had never heard about this phenomenon at all before. The angel here. Yeah, I've heard about it before. Yeah. Never heard of it. 
Never heard of it. And it didn't come up on any of the, uh, on Randy's site or Psychop's site. They have no references to it in their literature. I found that kind of surprising. Well, maybe we should add, add a reference to it on our skeptics. We'll, we will become the official skeptic uh, angel hair uh, site. Absolutely. With full references to Charlotte's Web. Oh, sure. <laughs> and, and color pictures. Well, that is all the time we have for this week. Uh, it always goes by quickly. Thanks again for listening. Bob, Perry, Evan, thanks for joining us. Thank you. Right here. Even though you were late, Evan. <laughs> Try to be on time next, uh, next week. <laughs> okay. <laughs> for all of you out there, uh, this is your Skeptic's Guide to the Universe. The Skeptic's Guide to the Universe is a production of the New England Skeptical Society. For more information about this and other episodes, visit our website at www.thenesss.com. Theorem is performed by Keneno and is used with permission. last theorem led him far from the mainstream. Sleepless nights, slow burn days, problems, proofs, endless delays.